Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Before I get into our conversation here today, I want to pause for a moment. I referenced something briefly last week, um, and I want to expand upon that a little bit here. There were events that happened in Israel recently that I think are just pure evil, to be honest. And I don't know with some of our backgrounds whether we understand um, what I touched upon last week and the roots of this. Um, there are those that are called Christian Zionists, and they go beyond just wanting to see Israel reestablished as a nation because of prophetic elements. They um, would, in many ways, not totally, but in many ways, would blindly support uh, Israel as a state, as a political entity. Um, there is a separation between the political entity that is the state of Israel and Jewish people or Judaism. The current state of Israel is a secular state. Um, it is not a theocracy as we find in the Old Testament. That is in no way to take away, though, from the reestablishment of it as a country and from Judaism itself. That's a separate issue. We can separate those in the same way that we should be able to separate the political entity that is the United States, our nation, many of us here claim, and its righteousness or wrongness depending on its situation or actions. So I'm not getting into the political conversation today and that's not really for what I'm offering. What I am wanting to draw your attention to is the Jewishness of this and the Semitic aspect of this. (coughs) If we accept scripture, (coughs) excuse me, that beginning with Abraham, God called out the Jewish people to be a chosen people, one through whom um, the Savior, the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ would come. Then they've been a marked people, and marked for righteousness perhaps and for blessing, but I think also marked for hatred. I think the, the enemy of our souls hates these people. And I think what acted out recently is just one of the recent expressions of the evilness of that. You can go to the Holocaust, of which this is the worst event since the Holocaust. That's really important to know. This is the worst. If this was in the United States, if you, if you take the, the countries and put them side by side based on, on, on population, this would be like the United States losing 35,000 people at one blow. Raped, murdered, etc. Uh, this goes beyond any political issue. This is evil. And that evilness, I think, is, is rooted way back in a hatred of the Jewish people and anti-Semitism. It's a particularly virulent, ugly form of racism that goes beyond um, of just the ethnic elements that are part of that. There's something called a pogrom that you might want to familiar yourself with. There's a definition. I don't know if we have it up there or not. But uh, not program, pogrom. It's a Russian word. A pogrom in the Russian word is to destroy, wreak havoc, or demolish violently. It's describing organized massacre of a particular ethnic, religious, racial, etc., etc. But it's approved or condoned <clears throat> by state authorities. The term program was originally targeting the Jewish people. And the term came up around the 1800s or so like that, 1700s. 
If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, then you know at the end of the story, they're leaving Anatevka. They're leaving because of a pogrom. Riots are going, breaking out people with the blessing of the authority, and the state figures are, are murdering and destroying Jewish people. This has happened around the world um, since ancient times. And so I would just raise this up to you, that there's a spiritual aspect to what's taking place, not getting into the political aspects, but there's a spiritual aspect to it. And I find it fascinating how our own country, especially the universities, is responding to this. I think it's saying much about our own country, that there can't even be a pause to acknowledge what's taking place before rushing to other issues of some type or another. Um, I say this in part because it goes to our conversation here today as we're exploring the Jewish people, of which Christianity is rooted. That's why you hear the term Judeo-Christian. And um, it's part of our conversation here today. So I would just raise your awareness in regards to that. And before we begin, uh, if we can join in prayer. Father, I do pray for the Jewish people. I pray against this evil that would destroy individuals, Jewish as well as others that are the, um, uh, the fallout of often of this as well too, and the violence that is propagated by this. And so, Father, we do pray for peace. Um, but we also ask that, that there would be... Um, a conscious awareness of the evil that we deal with this in the world that is an enemy not only just of Jewish people but of anyone who's going to follow you, anyone who's going to um, come out of the slavery of our sin and be a follower of Jesus Christ. Give us an understanding, not a fear, but an understanding, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we there yet? Today I want to talk to you about the doorposts of dawn, kind of a weird kind of a conversation to have in some regards. Um, we're going to look a look at, at Exodus chapter 7, and it opens up with Moses being told to go to Pharaoh, and we're going to see two themes here. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Which river? The river Nile, yeah. Uh, a 3,000-mile-long stretch that went through the heart of Egypt and pours into the ocean. And um, it made Egypt unique in the entire Middle East area in that they weren't dependent upon rain for their crops and things of this nature. The, the, the Nile would periodically overflow fertilizing areas around the edges of it, and it made for a very fertile area. But life was founded around the Nile. And so he's going to go out in the morning, number one, and he's going to go to the river, and he's to confront him on the bank of the Nile, take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake, then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go. Wow, that was good. <laughs> Can we kind of reverse that one? We're going to talk about darkness, but that's a little bit later, actually, in the conversation. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. I didn't even get a chance to say, let there be light, but hey, that's all right. So, um, and, and again, just so you say it, no, and especially those in the, in the atrium area, again, we are changing our, our tech and upgrading it significantly, but for the next month or two, you're going to see glitches happening as we've got new equipment trying to integrate with other equipment, and that's just going to happen. So just be aware and be very kind to the tech people, okay? They're working hard. Um, take your hand on the staff that was changing the snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go. So they may let my people go. becomes a major theme. Made a hit song out of it later, too. Um, so that they may worship me in the wilderness, but until now you have not listened. And this is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. Fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Evidently, Pharaoh, and this seemed to be common with a lot of the, the pharaohs, at least biblically that we read, um, would go in the morning to the river Nile. Um, it could have been to wash, it could have been to take a little dip, it could have been to observe the greatness of what it was. It also could have been for worship because the Nile River was worshipped as a god. 
in those times. Either way, Pharaoh, in his typical thing, goes in the morning to the Nile, and he encounters Moses. So several times Moses is meeting him at the river in the morning. If I'm Pharaoh, after a while, I don't want to go to the river, okay, in the morning. And that seems to fall away later, and he finds him in other places. So whether he just stops going, whatever else. But this was the common thing, all right? The River Nile is critical. Most rivers are. I mean, the reason why Detroit was established is because we're on the Detroit River. Yeah. A lot of major capitals or places are founded upon rivers and, and bodies of water. But the Nile was particularly, it was worshipped as a god. I'll give you a snapshot, literally. Here's three pictures I want to show you real quickly. This is a picture just, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Nile looking here outward. And you're seeing where people are abiding. Next picture real quick. You'll see a theme here. See the greenery there, the desert beyond? Next picture, then last one here, even more pronounced. You see life on the edge of the Nile, and that might extend for a half mile or a mile beyond some greenery or some provisions beyond that. You go beyond that almost most length of the Nile, and you're in the desert, arid, just, just no place to live. Life was gathered along this, this 3,000-mile stretch of water. The Nile was life to them. You can see visually just how much that meant. Greenery and life attached to it, death and aridness beyond. And so, kind of understandable in a way, that it would become this kind of a uh, um, uh, God-like type element to them. And so it's going to begin with the language that's being used here is literally a striking of the Nile. And it's going to turn it to blood. And it's going to be something smelly and the fish are going to die. And, and they go to the edges and try to get it filtrated through sand to dig wells to get some degree of water again. This term of striking is used throughout these ten plagues. And we're not going to go exhaustively into these plagues. Just know that there were ten of them. And this is the first and in many ways the most significant. Even though the last one will be the most devastating. This first one, um, this striking that happens in each of these is striking a deity or a god of Egypt. Egypt had over a hundred gods. Israel had one. This is a contest. This is a struggle that's being done. And this very first one is in many ways the most significant because as I said, the Nile is the lifeblood. It was, uh, was worshipped. It was a central item. There was an Egyptian god called Num who was said to be the guardian of the Nile. And this showed that he was unable to protect his territory. There's another one called Hape. And Hape was said to be the spirit of the Nile. But the spirit of the Nile can't stop and is brought low by this plague as well. And then the most important god probably was Osiris, or one of the most important. Osiris was the giver of life. He was a significant god in Egyptian uh, theology, if you will. But in that theology, the Nile River um, was basically his bloodstream. So now you have literally the, the great god they have, Osiris, is bleeding out. It was striking at all three of these gods at one shot and at one blow. It went on with other plagues. There's a plague of frogs, which addressed a, a god um, who was a frog goddess. Uh, it went on to lice. This affects uh, one god that was called Seb. Flies, uh, Yuhachit, which is another god. These first four plagues affect the Israelites as much as it affects the Egyptians. And that's kind of interesting. This is designed to set them free. But as we said last week, sometimes that can be a process. And so they're having to struggle through this as well too. After this though, 
it stops affecting them. The remaining of the plagues affects Egypt only. The next one is a disease on the cattle. And this affects Hathor, uh, a cow goddess, if you will. Uh, statues of her are already all over, still to this day, all over Egypt. Um, but now it's only affecting the Egyptians. The next one is boils, which is a, a, like a, a bad wound that gets festered and, and horrible on you. And, and this is uh, impacting a god named Imhotep. Now, Imhotep is, of course, if you've ever watched any of the Mummy series movies, then you know exactly who this guy is, of course, you know, because that's a very historically laden. That's sarcasm, guys. Okay, it's not, all right? It's just not. But Imhotep was an actual um, uh, live person at one point in time. He's one of only two characters that were non-royal people who became worshipped as gods later. Imhotep was a great architect, but he was mostly known as being a great physician. You have actual journals of showing medical procedures uh, that they would have had. Um, and he was known for that. So eventually he's lifted up as a god himself. And so boils this sickness, this illness that no one can heal. In fact, up until this time, the magicians of Pharaoh have kind of countered some of this stuff, either through fakery or illusion. But they don't even show up for this one. The reason why is because they all have boils. They're too sick to show up for the conversation. goes on. The next one is hail. And so there's just this flood of, 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 of chunks of ice that come down and devastate everyone. And the goddess this affects is a sky goddess that's often referred to as Nut, but it's spelled N-U-T, and so I just prefer Nut. Um, and so Nut just can't handle the sky anymore. It's, it's dropping down, Nut is dropping down on top of us. The next eighth plague is locusts, uh, Serapia, this deity protector from locusts is overrun because the locusts just stripped the land clean. And so now we're in serious trouble. And then the ninth one. The ninth one we come across in Exodus chapter 10. And this one's interesting. Not that the others aren't, but the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. And then notice what it says there. That darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be what? Felt. Wow. Very few of us in this room have been in true darkness, especially in our homes. There's always some LED or something else flashing somewhere in the corner of the room or sucking power as like a vampire from our lines, okay? Some charging device. But I've been in caves, as I said ways back, where I've been in wild caves when I was in my college years and beyond, where you turn off the lights and there's nothing. You can't see your hand in front of you. You cannot see anything. That's a darkness that can almost be felt, but I've never used that terminology until seeing and reading it here. This is a darkness that could be felt. It is so dark, so oppressive, so heavy, that you feel the oppression of it. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt. Interestingly enough, for three days. That's an interesting thing. We won't get into that today, but it's interesting. Darkness for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. You're going to walk into a wall, step over the edge of a cliff, whatever. No one can do it. But here's interesting. <clears throat> Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. That had been weird. You know what I mean? It's kind of like there's, there's darkness everywhere else, and what would happen if you stepped across the, the, the demarcation line? Suddenly you're light, and then you go back in the dark. And I don't know how that worked out, but it says the Israelites had light and weren't affected. But they had darkness. That affected one of their most significant gods, Amun-Ra, 
who was the God of the sun or of the light. All these things, whether it's hitting Num or Hapi or Osiris or Hector, Hathor, Amitat, Nut, any of these, it's affecting all these gods. It's striking all of them and saying, look it, you may have a hundred gods, but there's only one that really matters, and you ain't worshiping him. It goes to every statement that, 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 that um, Pharaoh has. I, who, who is this God? Who is this Lord that I, I don't know who he is? He's beginning to learn a little bit about who he is. The, the, the Egyptians have gods. Israel has God. And in the struggle between these, the gods of Egypt are losing left and right. This second to the last is particularly disturbing. It shakes them up. But you know how things are at night where you have these fears and these uneasiness and then it gets daylight again and suddenly you just kind of forget about those anymore. Or how when you're in stress and you're pressed and you beg God for help but then it's okay again until you forget all about it and move on in the same way Pharaoh moves right on when the light comes back up. No, you're not going to let go. I'm not going to put these on the screen but I'll try to flash quickly forward this on the 12th chapter because in the 12th chapter Moses is told to gather the whole community together of the Israelites he says that in gathering them together, there's something specific that you're going to do in this point in time. What we want you to do is to um, get a lamb, first of all, and have the lamb stay in the house with the kids for, the, for four days. So for four days, this lamb is going to live and be cherished with us and by us. It has to be a lamb that is a year old male, male, and it has to be without defect of any kind. And then if you're living in the household with everyone for four days and you get close and you get familiar, then you're to take this lamb and you're to slaughter it, you're to kill it. Which means that it's death. There's going to be a sense of cherishing of this lamb and also a mourning that's going to happen. There's an emotional connectivity. It's going to cost us something beyond just the life of the lamb. There's some emotional investment now in this. Both cherished and mourned. You're to slaughter this lamb, not at any old time. You're to slaughter, slaughter this lamb at twilight. Now, forget all about the vampires and the werewolves about twilight. This is a different twilight, okay? And so at twilight, at the time when, when maybe the sun is setting, but still light, at that time, with the light receding, you're to kill this lamb. You're to take this, the blood of this lamb and you're to spread it over the doorposts of your house you take uh, something called a hyssop bush, a kind of mint type thing that had frothy little uh, fronds and you dip it in the blood and then you paint the side and the top and then the other side of this wooden frame and the blood would soak into the wood of that frame. It didn't end there. This is happening at twilight. Now you go into the house and as you go into the house, you're going to partake of the lamb that's been roasted. It has to be roasted. Fire's got to be involved. It can't be, be boiled or anything else. It's very specifically roasted and whatever you don't eat has to be completely burned up and consumed. It, it has the echoes of sacrifice and sacrificing behind it. In addition to all that's supposed to be part of that, you're, you're supposed to have bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. On top of all that, you're supposed to, when you eat of this, take your cloak, the longer item you'd wear, and tuck it in your belt and have your staff with you and your sandals on like you're ready to run out the door. 
You see, with the clothing that I have in those days, if I, if I have my robe, if I, if I try to run, I'm going to get tangled up in the robe. I take the robe, I tuck it up here, and now my legs are free, and I'm running fast. This is why in the prodigal son story, when the father sees the son coming from a distance to come home again, it's such a powerful imagery to realize this father, who would have been respectable and, and all that's with it, and who is the one who had been offended against, that he tucks his robes and he runs to see him. He would have been in a very undignified, I'm going to go out because I want to reclaim my son. Powerful imagery. Here is the idea that we're ready to go. We're ready to move fast and exit. He says, on this night, this final plague's going to come. I'm going to pass over. Um, it says you. And there's going to be a destructive plague that will touch you when I strike Egypt, that will not touch you, but will strike Egypt. And then he goes in the 14th verse of, of Exodus 12, says, this day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You'll celebrate as a festival of the Lord, a lasting ordinance. What we're doing here with this whole event, you're supposed to do this forever. This is the first portion of it, but you do it forever. Exodus chapter 12, we pick this back up again now, chapter tw- verses 21 and 22 that we can put up there. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel, said to them, go at once, select the animals for your families, slaughter the Passover lamb. Why is it called Passover? Because the angel of death will pass over the house. Take a bunch of hyssop, this, this kind of minty type frothy thing, dip it in the blood in the basin, put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. And then this, none of you shall go out of that door of your house until morning. You are not to go out. And so this, this whole thing's being done, four days with the lamb, we know this lamb, then we slaughter, we put over, we, we do all these other actions, and then we go into, through this bloody doorway, into our home, to have this bizarre little meal that we're going to have. It goes on in verses 24 and 27 of Exodus 12. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed and worshipped. This was striking at Osiris, the giver of life, because now the firstborn of every household that didn't do this in Egypt is going to die. It strikes directly at Osiris, the giver of life for the Egyptians. It strikes directly at Pharaoh, the god king, because this happens to his own house. He can't stop it either. It gets so devastating, and there's such an outcry around the nation that that Pharaoh actually calls Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night So all this is happening. Moses comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, that's it. Just get out of my sight and take all these people with you. In the darkness, in the middle of the night, is when the freedom comes to the people, even though they don't know it until the dawn. This event that was referred to as Passover is what we know today as the Last Supper. This would have been the ceremony that had been now at this point in time, in the time of Christ, would have been celebrated for easily a thousand, maybe close to two thousand years. They would have celebrated this. It would have had very specific components to it. 
It would have had bread without yeast, a matzah-type bread. It was referred to as um, the bread of affliction, but also would have been referred to as the bread of freedom as well. In fact, Jesus would have taken this bread as part of the ceremony, and the people who would do this would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. This would have been the meal he would have taken part of. He would have, at one point in time, as we would find in Matthew chapter 26, verses 18 19, he says, Go into the city to a certain man, tell him the teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Matthew 26, verse 26, while they're eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. There would have been several other portions of this. I don't have all the elements present, but another thing would have been bitter herbs that would have been part of this. Today, oftentimes, they use horseradish. Pretty pungent. They would dip into that as a reminder of the bitterness of slavery, to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. They would take parsley and different times would dip it into salt water and take of that to remind them of the bitterness of their tears that they had during the time of slavery. There would have been another dipping of something I don't have up here, of kind of a sweetened fruit paste to also talk about the freedom they would have. And then there would be four cups of wine that would have been done at different parts of the ceremony. This is something that would have been happening from the time we're talking about in Egypt until the time of Christ. He would have taken this meal that he's eating of with his disciples. Today, Jews will still practice this. There's a little bit of adjustment, and I'll give you that adjustment, but it usually starts off by the youngest child in the room saying, why is this night different from all of the nights? And then they would ask four questions. And the last one has changed since the fall of the temple. First question would be, why is it that on all of the nights during the, the year, we eat either leavened bread or matzah, but on this night we eat only matzah? Why is it that on all of the nights we eat all kinds of vegetables, but on this night we eat bitter herbs? Why is it that on all of the nights we do not dip our food even once, but on this night we dip them twice? And the question that would have been, but has now been exchanged for another at the fall of the temple, is why is it that on all the nights we eat meat, either roasted, marinated, or cooked, but on this night it's entirely roasted? Since roasted sacrifices were no longer possible after the destruction of the temple, um, roasted meat then was kind of be disallowed by Orthodox and traditional Jews. And so they exchanged that question uh, about the roasted meat being linked to the sacrificial things that would have been in the temple. They would have introduced a different question. The fourth question now is, why is it that on all other nights we dine either sitting upright or reclining? But on this night we all recline. The answers to these... We eat only matzah because our ancestors could not wait for their breads to rise when they are fleeing slavery in Egypt, and so they were flat when they came out of the oven. We eat only mara, a bitter herb, horseradish, if you will, to remind us of the bitterness of slavery that our ancestors endured while in Egypt. The first dip, green vegetables and salt water, symbolizes the replacing of our tears with gratitude. The second dip uh, in the sweetened item that I don't have up here symbolizes the sweetening of our burden of bitterness and suffering. The fourth one, we recline at the cedar table because in ancient times, a person who reclined at a table was a free person while slaves and servants stood. 
and the question that's no longer on the table because of the fall of the temple. We eat only roasted meat because that is how the Passover lamb is prepared during sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. This was the event. It was referred to as communion by Christians. It's referred to as the Last Supper sometimes. It's also referred to as Eucharist because throughout this you see um, Thanksgiving being offered. And Eucharist is the Greek word for Thanksgiving. There is some controversy, some difference of opinion in Christianity. In, in some circles in ancient times, they, they would have referred to the bread as literally the body and, and the cup as literally the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a thing called transubstantiation in Catholicism. And the idea is that somehow um, it becomes that at the blessing of the priest. It, it literally becomes that. The Latin phrase would be hoc est enum corpus. This is my body. In medieval times, there were those who saw this and saw the priest doing his action and, and saying, well, that's something magical, some transformation taking place by the blessing of the priest. And these phrases, so the term hocus corpus became corrupted into hocus pocus by the street magi- magicians of the time. Luther comes along and steps one step away from Catholicism, Lutheranism, consubstantiation. There's the, we know it's not the actual blood and body because we... But somehow when it goes inside us, it becomes that. There are others on the even more extreme edge that says it's strictly symbolism. It's strictly a memory issue. But there are others who would argue, and I would agree with this, that there's, it's, not, it's not any of the first two, but it's not the last one either. There's something of the real presence of God there. There's something different about this. It's not the actual blood and body, blood, blood and body but there's something unique. Why would I draw that? Because what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27-29, Paul's saying, so then whoever eats the, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment to themselves. Now listen carefully because some of you will misunderstand this. I better be completely sin-free before I have communion. Yeah, good luck with that one, okay? No, that's not what it's talking about. What it's saying, you don't do this frivolously. You don't do this casually. You don't sit here and say, well, it's just a thing. We sit here and say, at this moment of time, we're identifying with Christians and with Jews for thousands of years that there's something of of honoring and remembering the death and sacrifice of Christ. We've said many times, you do not have to be a member of this church. You do need to be a follower of Christ. You need to be someone who's, who's recognizing what this means. And then, yes, we're contemplative when we do this. We don't do it casually. But it's not like, I've I, I got to make sure there's nothing wrong with me. No, but it's a good time to confess. It's a good time to, to be sober before the Lord. And then we take of it together. There's meaning behind this. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians, we won't discuss it now, about a new covenant being established that Jesus says. But I want to draw your attention as we go to the end point of this in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus talking, he says he took a cup and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I tell you, I'll not drink from the fruit of the vine from now till that day until I drink it new with you in my Father's house. What's, what's taking place here? There's something unique that's happening here that maybe we're not catching on to. He's taking a cup that we know there are four cups. But it's strongly believed that the cup he would have taken, as he said, and lifts this one, the one he would have used for the communion 
would have been the third cup. Why that third cup? Because you see, all four of these cups relate to something that we've already talked about, if you were paying attention a week ago or so. All four of these cups in Jewish tradition are linked to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. When God comes back and says, look it, I know you're a little disappointed that the immediate freedom isn't there, but here's my promises to you, Exodus chapter 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and one, I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. Two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And four, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This is what I am going to do. The first cup, I'll bring you out. I'll drink to that. The second cup, I'll free you from being slaves. I'll drink to that too. But when Jesus enacts the Last Supper, it's the third cup he takes. The cup that says, I will redeem you. It's the cup of redemption. It's the idea that you're going to be bought with a price and set free. It's that cup that he lifts up and said, this is the blood of my covenant with you. You're going to be redeemed. They would have finished the ceremony with the fourth cup. They didn't leave it hanging. And it's believed by many that it's that fourth cup that he's referencing, saying, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why? Because that fourth cup says, I will take you as my own people and I'll be your God. So we're going to have this cup now, but I'm not going to drink of this again until we are all in heaven together and you are my people and I am your God and we're hanging out for, a th- for eternity and it's going to be a heck of a party. That was the Passover meal. Is done at this final last plague. The Passover creates a nation out of a mob of slaves that are freed from Egypt to become this nation. This new Passover, this Last Supper, this Eucharist, this communion creates a people. Those of us who are united in Christ and have come out of the slavery of the sin that has bound us for so long. This is the final thing that I want you to understand though is this. They would have come and done all of this the first time through in a particular fashion. A lamb that's in our house for four days. So the death is one that is both cherished and one that is mourned. It costs us something to have that. We take the blood of that and we're spreading it now over this wooden frame, the blood is soaked into this wooden frame in the same way that the Lamb of God, Christ, His blood is going to be taken and poured out on a different wooden frame of a cross. And after we've done this, as the light is now fading away and it's going to darkness, I'm now walking through this bloody doorpost into my house to have this meal of expectation with things ready to go and, and these bitter herbs and the, uh, the bread of affliction that's also supposed to be the bread of freedom. All these things I'm having I don't know where this is going, but as the darkness falls and I'm in the house by myself and I'm told I can't go outside, I'm hearing something because people are waking up to finding death in the houses around us and we're hearing the wails and the cries. We we know something horrible is happening as we huddle inside the darkness. When will this end? Maybe it's going to be three more days like the other Egyptians suffered. Maybe we're going to, we don't know. We're in that darkness and we're waiting, obedient to God, but waiting. 
We don't know yet that, that in the middle of this night with all the death going around, we do not know yet that, that Pharaoh has folded. He's called Moses in and said, you're free, go. We don't know that though. Our freedom has already been won in the night. All we know is we're huddling behind these bloody doorposts waiting for the dawn. And then finally, the morning comes. Finally, the dawn breaks. Finally, the wait's over. The fear is dissipated. And now we come through that same blood-soaked doorway, but into the light to see others of our neighbors and friends step through their doorways. And we look and we realize not only have we survived the night, but God is doing something miraculous. I don't know where you are in the process. For many of us, we are still huddling in that darkness, not knowing and realizing that our freedom has actually already been purchased. We feel fearful, we feel alone, we feel isolated. And the more we see the evilness that is in this world, the more we just, oh God, where are you? And he says, I'm already working, guys. Your freedom's already being established. Pharaoh's already folded. The gods of Egypt are gone. Just hang with it. Obey. Stay the course. There'll be a time when the sunlight's coming up and you'll walk through those doorposts of dawn into the light of my salvation and grace. You are going to be freed from the sins. There's something being established here that's going to echo for centuries. And you're part of it. This is about us. It's about Israel as a template, but it's about us. The whole story of salvation from Genesis to Revelations is about a God who comes to rescue you and me. Are you there yet? Do you understand this? Do you own this? Father, this morning as we see the darkness and evil around us, the violence, the ugliness, the hatred... It's not just directed at your chosen people. It's directed at all those who would follow truth and righteousness. But in the middle of all of this darkness, Lord, you are working just as surely as you were then. And Father, I pray that as we go forward that that there would not be a time in the future that we would take of communion, that we would not stop and recognize and understand the depths of what we are participating in. Not to make us fearful, but to make us heavy with awareness and thoughtfulness. You came. You offered that sacrifice. Your blood was spread across the wood so that we could walk through that doorway into the grace and forgiveness of God. That we could be a people no longer under bondage, no longer under darkness, no longer afflicted, but a people free to become the fullness of what you wanted us to be. This morning, Lord, in this moment, in this time, we stop, we pause, we not just honor you, but we seek you in the midst of this moment. Pause just one second before we go your day and just recognize the power of what God does here, taking a, a common meal and marking that in such a way that you literally have the texture and feel of what's going on and, and the aromas... The, the, the richness of what would have been in that room at the time. Very 
tangible, very touchable. Something that you don't forget. Something that you can actively engage in. As you go into this week and this next period of time, process and contemplate what, what this means for you. What communion itself is supposed to be about. This is the story of Israel. But it's also the story of us. We've been grafted in. Father, I do pray for the Jewish people. I pray also, Lord, for those who have committed themselves to you in Christ, who struggle in the midst of the evil that surrounds. Let us be aware, God, and let us be ever conscious that you are God, that all other forms of authority fall before you. Let us trust in you, Lord God, and lean in. You did not fail them, and you will not fail us. We commit ourselves to these things. In the name of Jesus Christ. And as church said, amen. So be it.